Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 39. This is March 5th, and as I'm recording this the day before, is a beautiful day here. I don't know what the weather's like where you are, but I hope it's something as close to a foretaste of spring as we're having here today. This has been a really good week for this podcast. I've connected with a lot of future guests. I've got guests from, from all over, and there's, um, there's guests after that that I'm getting in touch with. Looks like this podcast is going to be able to continue strong for a while. This is one of those things I can't say that I'm, it's going to be able to go a year, two years, three years. Um, but I, w- I guess I let me rephrase that. I do think we are going to make it one year. Uh, one year would be at the end of June, and I think we've got more than enough guests for that. Um, so that's a great thing. Also, some of you have generously clicked on that donate button that is now on the website for this page, which once again is davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. And every little bit helps cover some of the operating expenses of this podcast, and I just say thank you for that. Anything you feel inspired to give is very much appreciated. And again, once again, just because this is new, I just want to say this is not expected. Uh, you're, this podcast is free. And I hope that you'll you'll enjoy it. And um, you know, one of the ways you can give this podcast is to share with your friends. And again, please take a moment, offer a five star rating and review, or just the rating if you don't have that much time. It all goes to help get this podcast into uh, as many earphones and speakers as possible. Okay, this episode is going to be one of the shorter ones. Um, last week we listened to John Eldridge and I talk about keyboard programming and John Eldridge again is the owner of a company called Stage Sounds and Stage Sounds is a company that goes ahead and takes popular books and creates the, the programs that you can download for main stage to use with your keyboard. Basically taking about maybe a few minutes, probably less than an hour, to set up something that takes anywhere from 10 to 20 to 30 hours, thereby saving you time and also saving you opportunity costs. And we'll talk more about that in this episode. In the last episode, we uh, we talked to John, and, and please go back and listen to that. That was a very popular episode. In fact, one of our reviews this week was specifically praising episode number 38. So to find out more about John and who he is, definitely go back and check that if you missed it. What we talked about in episode 38 was the what keyboard programming is and what this is all about. We're going to get into a conversation about why. And again, as sequels go, I enjoyed this conversation quite a bit. I didn't intend for this to be a two-part episode when we started. Uh, John had another point he wanted to make, and so he contacted me, and that just became its own conversation, and I didn't want to edit it anymore, and I had to. So this is our second 
separate conversation we had on the subject of keyboard programming. So once again, here's a conversation with John Eldridge. We covered a lot of really great ground last last week about, you know, sort of, I guess, the what aspect of this, you know, of, right. of keyboard programming. You know, what is it? Right. We talked a lot about that, you know, how it's essentially just, you know, sound design for keyboards. Right. Um, we didn't get so much into the why. <laughs> right. And I guess that was sort of what I wanted to reconnect about. Um, what versus why. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's easy to explain what this is. It's a little more sort of nebulous to explain why. And I guess that's true of a lot of things. Right. Um, <laughs> I guess what it boils down to is this is sort of just a reflection of the pace of technology. Right. And as technology progresses and we keep using it in different areas, you know, uh, things change. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) this is no different. Um, I think you also sort of have to remember that the keyboard has gone from just a color orchestral instrument into sort of its own section. Right. Um, So we have shows with two, three, four keyboards, (laughs) you know, in, in some cases. And, you know, they really do make up not just you know small percentages of the sound of the score but majority in in many cases you know if you look at a show like mama mia with you know that's one of the great examples of four keyboards you know when you're talking about the sound of that show i'd say it's probably a majority based on those four keyboards and without that you know you're going to be losing the core of it and that's true of you know more and more shows you know this again this used to be a novelty thing and now it's you know now it's not and again that's relating back to the pace, the pace of technology. Um, I think we talked about briefly about, you know, one of the first examples of this, which is cats in Mm -hmm. 1980 or 81. I don't remember which. Right. Um, But there have, you know, been, been a few significant examples over the years of, you know, shows which made use of really popular synthesizers at the time. Cats was obviously one and the, the, you know, the instrument was the prophet five um Les Mis is another and when Les Mis came out in 1987 it made huge use of the Yamaha DX7 which was a massively popular synthesizer of the 80s you know and right. everybody knows it even if they don't realize they know it you know there's so many popular music so much popular music from the time that made use of that and the, you know they brought it into the forefront of that score as well right. um, I believe the Little Shop of Horror uh, score is also pretty detailed as far yeah, as like, yeah yeah little shop yeah. Is a great example I believe yep, that's 82 if i'm not mistaken so. 82 yep and that yeah. made use of like three separate instruments you had a hammond organ you had i think like a rhodes just an electric piano and then you had a moog you know a mini moog synthesizer for some of the uh other other fun lines but yeah you the chair was meant to like have three different instruments around you and you're right. playing on different different manuals throughout the show which I think when I first did it in high school, that was the way we set it up. We just set up instruments like that, you know, and found good sounds on them. And right. the players, you know, just scooted around in a, you know, rolling chair. <laughs> right. Um, and then, but that's, of course, the secondary keyboard book. And we're, again, that's a great example of this because there's still the primary keyboard one chair, which is just piano. Right. I don't think in that show it was probably even called keyboard one. It's just probably called, you know, yeah, piano. piano. <laughs> <laughs> the lingo the lingo is so you know all over the place we talked about why does this exist you know because of technology but right the next right. why is why is it necessary right <laughs> you know we talked about okay you know 
sure, you used to be able to just sit down and select a couple of buttons for the sounds that you wanted because that's all the composer or the orchestrator wrote. You know, they would write electric piano or they would write, you know, jazz organ, you know, or very just vague descriptors of things. And then you would just pick whatever worked best. And that's, you know, that worked fine for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably how I did most of my keyboard playing and programming up until I was about 25 <laughs> right? and discovered, you know, some of this other stuff because I never really owned anything that was that complicated and i fell into main stage you know through necessity because i finally found a show where i was like oh i'm not going to be able to replicate this right <laughs> uh, and know, that show was that show was shrek i think we actually talked about that one last week you know i think a good an example you know especially for the musicians who have played in orchestras but maybe haven't played in the pit before <laughs> Um, it's kind of like before 1835, if I'm remembering my statistics correctly, uh, French horns did not have valves. And so you had to write with those limitations, but then they got valves and you had a few composers like Johannes Brahms say, it's not a real horn if it has <laughs> valves, you know? So he still wrote horn and E horn and D and stuff like that. Yeah, um, yeah. but you know, that's a really other, good comparison. But, but your other composers are like, Hey, French horns have valves now they can do all the mm -hmm. notes within these <laughs> octaves and and Very you know good. at some point asking composers to only write overtones for the french horn rather than yep. all of the chromatic notes is a little bit absurd so you know at some point keyboard was uh, you know a good keyboard was expensive and you couldn't trust that um somebody in i don't know um St. Louis is going to have a, a you know a keyboard for their theater. <laughs> right, that exactly. is going to be able the to specific do that. synthesizer that you need. <laughs> yes, but exactly. uh, but now the technology is out there, and as you said, uh, you know anybody with a with a controller, laptop, and main stage, yeah, can get right. decent sounds for the show, and also customizable some something that could be really programmable. And w since that's out of the box, you know, it's like you can't put it back in and yeah. composers and arrangers are going to look at that, especially when they're saying, you know, it sure be nice if we were living back in 1925 in vaudeville when I could get a, you know, 40, 50 piece orchestra and, you know, yeah. have all these sounds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, that you know, nobody, no producer is going to hire that. You, you know, even I don't even know yeah, what's exactly. the biggest pits now on Broadway. Well, now right, are. and that was that was actually that's that is believe it or not that is the first point under this the first bullet point under this section of my notes here that I wrote down, which right. is smaller orchestrations equals more pressure on keys. <laughs> uh, and I think that's you know that's exactly what you're alluding to here is that you know right. as as the size overall you know the overall average size of ensembles has been shrinking you know for decades not just, you know, recently with synthesizers, but it had been, it's, you know, been happening since, you know, right. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe the fifties right. may have been a peak, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think as, as, I think as popular music began, you know, taking over, you know, as, as rock and jazz, you know, those are just by nature, they're smaller, smaller groups, they're smaller bands. And as that, those styles started creeping into musical theater, you know, I think people always say it's at least 10 years behind, you know, so it takes right. a while for, you know, the music to get, get onto, you know, the stage, but, um, you know, you find over, over the decades that, you know, ensembles are shrinking and that puts more, that puts more pressure on everybody, bottom line, you know, not just the keyboards, um, but it puts more pressure on everyone. And as you said, you know, the cat being out of the bag here with right. the ability to, you know, 
layer different sounds, the ability to do so many complex things. I mean, it's not just about sounds anymore. It's about, you know, being able to trigger complex samples. It's about being able to, you know, play chords with just a single finger. You know, it's about all these all these layering and splits and individual zones and things that you can do really fairly quickly and easily now. You know, we talked a little bit about your experience with Shrek last week and how, you know, it took you, I think you said a week or two to get through three songs. <laughs> right. And uh, I, I think, believe it or not, when I started working with Mainstage, it was about the same for me because I started at the beginning and I just, you know, flipped through the book and went as I went and I didn't, I didn't right. have a workflow. Really. Yeah. Well, this yeah, wasn't even in the main stage. This was just on my core. <laughs> right. And exactly. Performance you thing. Yeah. Part of it, right. Yeah. And main stage does make, you know, streamline it significantly, but it's still, you know, this like anything, there's, you know, there's a learning curve, but we talked a little bit, like you said about Shrek with the complexity of things. And I think that's an important you know, piece you talked about how there, mm-hmm. it isn't just one sound at a time you're playing anymore. You know, it might be a layer of two or two or three it might be different zones where you have you know one octave with one instrument and other octaves with others and then those things may be transposed in different octaves so what right. you're playing in your left hand is actually sounding up four octaves and your right hand is sounding down three you know it's a whole <laughs> and people write this just based on necessity basically and various orchestrators have various you know different you know, strategies um one one good example that I like to bring up is one of one of my best sellers, which is Spelling Bee. Right. And that is, you know, a notoriously tiny orchestration, which is really great and really well written by um by Michael Starobin. Right. And uh it's the piano, it's the synthesizer, which has all of the keyboard programming, of course, and then a reed, a cello, and a percussionist. Percussionist does like a lot of mallets, a lot of really cool color stuff. Right. And the reed, I think. Is doubling flute, clarinet, alto, and oboe at a couple points. There's right. a really couple of nice oboe solos in there. Um, but the synth book is crazy because not only does it have, you know, dozens and dozens of different sounds that are typically layered in, you know, groups of two or three or four. Um, and not only does it have lots of chord triggers with like your left hand thumb where you're playing one note at a time and it's playing, you know, full five, six, seven voice chords. Right. But one really important aspect of that synthesizer book is that all of the bass parts are in the left hand. Mm-hmm. And if you don't program that correctly, you're not going to have the bass sound. But more importantly, it's not even going to be in the right octave. Right. <laughs> the synthesizer book, if you flip it open and look at it, it actually looks really similar to the piano part, mm-hmm. like almost identical in spots. So if you, you know, I've, I've played them side by side and it's basically a lot of the same ink, but there's just a massive amount of programming on the synthesizer and the bass is usually sounding down, you know, an octave in the left hand, right. all kinds of other things. But so if you don't do that, you're essentially going to be, you know, playing two parts that aren't supposed to, you know, coexist the way that they are. You know, you right. really have to have those things set up in advance in order for it to work the way it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. Otherwise the orchestration is really going to sound very off (laughs) um and you'll have you know four out of the five parts but that fifth part like you know i made some comparisons to mamma mia is probably at least the majority of the orchestration with how many different sounds are in there it's a huge part of it um and the first time i did it you know correctly with that programming it really blew my mind and i was like oh my gosh this sounds like it basically almost sounds like a full orchestra at times (laughs) and it's just five people (laughs) right And that's, you know, that's good. It's good writing on Starobin's part, but it's also due in in significant part to, you know, the technology being correctly applied in order to make that programming work. Yeah. 
and and also you know just the thought that just came to mind but you know again it'd be great to have like a broadway composer and arranger uh you know on board sometime to kind of ask about these things but you know i have a feeling that um a lot of these guys they aren't thinking about you know i, I don't know I, so I don't, I don't want to keep picking on st louis they're not thinking about <laughs> like uh you know community right. theater in uh tucson not arizona putting on a pr- production when they're writing it they're thinking about nope. um you know 47th street <laughs> we're, yeah, you know thinking they're thinking about broadway the best they can be yeah because <laughs> we want we want you know the producers to really like what we have and we want the audiences to come and we want it to sound great and then yeah. if it's successful which you know odds are it won't be just in you know, and, and i'm just saying that's just the odds <laughs> just of the math. <laughs> um but if it's successful if it's one of those you know one tenth of one percent shows you know that they get there then you can start marketing and you can start saying okay well what right. can we do um in fact i know with working that was the case that the, the book that you get is not what they did on broadway but it's what they oh, yeah, tailor exactly. made for yeah, chicago yeah. So. Yeah. Totally different version. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's exactly true. You know, these, you know, people, you know, the people who are writing these shows, you know, the authors, the composers, you know, the lyricists, the orchestrators, they're literally just trying to make it as, as great as they can, you know, they can, that's their right. only job. And, you know, I remember, you know, that was sort of the biggest, you know, shock that struck me when I worked on Ride the Cyclone. Right. Um, and, it was basically my takeaway from it was there is no such thing as no as an answer. Right. Basically, <laughs> if someone asks something, your answer is either yes or I will figure it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, if they want it to happen, it's going to happen. Right. <laughs> and they have as much money as they want. Um, this was off Broadway, so <laughs> we didn't have that much money. But, right. You know, um, it's that's it's just it's just an attitude, I think. But it's it's, you know it's indicative of sort of the entire industry, you know, that they will do, do what it takes to make it, make it sound great. And everybody has a different way of doing that, you know, from an orchestrator's perspective. Um, you know, some of those complex shows, you kind of know they're coming when you see the orchestrator's name. If you see Starobin's name, you know, there's going to be some funky stuff. Right. <laughs> Falsettos is another one that's written in a very similar way. Um, Spelling Bee made a big use of like the Roland JV modules. I think it was the JV 1080, but uh, Falsettos was older. It was back in like the early 90s. And I think he says it was a Roland D50 maybe. But a lot of the same sounds actually carried over because those are were similar similar modules. So you can find similar sounds in the books. And then you sort of you sort of learn some of his some of his ways <laughs> as you right. do as you do them. And then you JV 1080 was uh, my first my well my first real professional unit it was the but it was the rack mountable you know yeah I used, I yeah used the yep, guitar sure. studio logic for the controller <laughs> oh yeah exactly that's great 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 module there's tons of good sounds in there i i don't have a hardware version of it but i have the roland cloud yeah and that you know gives you access to a bunch of those old had things, the uh, or- orchestral cool. expansion board which was you know oh, pretty yeah. good at the time you know yeah no that was definitely you know Definitely, really. Uh, okay, now I'm really feeling good. old. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's that's sort of the fun part of this, I guess. Yeah. You know, and that's that's one of the reasons why I really enjoy getting into it is like finding out, you know, some of like the old vintage gear that's used on these shows and all of those things. Right. As far as why is this stuff necessary? We talked about complexity. 
uh, we started to get in, into a little bit of my next point here, which is density. You know, right. some of these shows, Spelling Bee actually is comparatively not very dense because you'll have one patch. Granted, it's a very complicated patch with lots of different sounds in the bass and the left hand. But that patch will sustain for two or three pages, maybe sometimes. You know, you may sit on that patch for a while and there might be a few periods of quick changes. But um, but there are other shows where it's just nonstop. Shows like Adam's Family, shows like Pippin. Uh, those are both Larry Hockman orchestrations, by the way. Right. <laughs> He's notorious for this. But, you know, you'll have five, six, seven, eight zones on a patch, and then you'll have a new patch two bars later. Mm-hmm. And then two bars after that, and two bars after that. And it's just like, oh, my goodness. Right. <laughs> it just keeps coming. The first time I opened one of those books, I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> right. I, I bookmarked a lot of time for that. So <laughs> um, so there's it, those are sort of two opposing factors. They don't always factor in, but um complexity versus density there the other one is specificity right and that is relating more like to a show like mamma mia Mm -hmm. where you know the (laughs) the labels in the books will literally just say something like dancing queen synth (laughs) right and you're like okay i guess i'm gonna go listen to the song (laughs) right uh and that's that's all you have to do because they don't have much more than that they may occasionally tell you the model that was used like oh this was the arp 2600 or whatever you can be like, okay, well, I guess I'll pull up that and right. <laughs> start from there. Um, but you still have to do a lot of listening and pick out things by ear. One advantage that you get is that MTI typically sends you a CD. Well, I don't know if it's a CD anymore. That will send you a package, either digital or you know a hard copy, that has a lot of those samples on them. Um, and there, you know, there are little things like, um, like if you know the. The title song, Mamma Mia, has that like synth guitar riff that right. and that's sampled into the keyword three book. And it's such an iconic sound. You can't really recreate it. It just is what it is. Um, right. But the other part of that show is that there's so many pre-recorded vocals and there are sections of the score that you have to sit down and you have to pre-record, you know, sections of the ensemble because, you know, that's just part of the ABBA sound is, you know, huge stacked walls of vocals. And if you don't have those like 12 different parts, it's just not going to sound like ABBA, you know? And they achieved that in live performance by having, you know, you know, two or three vocal parts for the men and the women, but also having occasionally pre-recorded parts in the background, occasionally having like a subgroup sing, you know, some counter melodies and stuff. The vocal arrangements are really amazing for that show. Right. But a lot of that ends up in the keyboard parts miraculously because they're sampled. Right. And that's, you know, another example of something that you can't just pull up, you know, ABBA vocals on your keyboard. Right. Uh, especially not ones that are in the exact correct key and at the exact correct tempo. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, those are sort of my three big points on why it is necessary. And again, you sort of have to look at this from a bird's eye view for every different show. It, it's totally different. You know, you right. can't really compare any of them because they're all each each their own animal. Um, and what may be true of one is certainly not true of another. And there are right. some shows where I would flat out tell you no it's not really that necessary you can probably use your hardware just hit a few buttons and have good sounds you know like i've done godspell a bunch of times and i've never used main stage programming for it i've i've thought about it but it's like "Eh," you know i'm just using like a few eps and organs and it's never more than one sound at a time so yeah as long as you have some good ones yeah i mean if we're being honest here it, it really depends on the venue if i'm playing for a professional theater uh, oh sure, and then I'm probably going to try to do uh, 
the best I can. If I'm playing for a community theater and it's within reason my budget to get all the sounds, that's great. But yeah. you know, if if he doesn't really care, you know, like well, this, <laughs> we don't need this brass sound in the low zone. I tell you, we'll just make it all piano <laughs> piano and strings you know <laughs> those are safe exactly no I, I i totally dig it and i agree yep yeah we've covered a couple of these whys here right and the next one is why you know why would you hire a professional as opposed to doing it yourself um and i i guess i'll probably come back to this but there are you know there's sort of different levels of this you know, when we're talking about at the Broadway level or, you know, for national tours or anything like that, you know, yeah, there's typically somebody, maybe even a team of people who are hired to do this. Uh, and they're typically creating designs from scratch. You know, it's either it's a new show or it's a remounting of an old show or something. And they're, you know, they're doing all the work. Right. Um, and that's sort of its own thing. But then there's Again, we've talked about shows after the fact, now that they're being licensed to other people. And right. you've got people like me, and there are plenty of other people who do it as well. And, you know, companies like real-time music services or whatever who, you know, have their own products, um, you know, who have basically a, a pre-made solution, you know, and it's not, right. we're not doing it from scratch. It's already been done. Mm -hmm. But you basically just, you know, get it and you make use of it what you can it's not going to be designed for you from the ground up you know i do you know make changes if people request them i do charge for it obviously because it takes some time but right <laughs> you know if if they want me to do it and it's significant enough and people have, have asked for custom work all the time that's fairly common um but you know again you have to sort of just distinguish between okay someone doing something building it from the ground up which is a significant you know investment of time and you know, money in a way, because a lot of these people, you know, have, have access to, you know, huge collections of gear, you know, either hardware or, you know, sample libraries virtually. Um, right. It's, you know, a huge, <laughs> huge rabbit hole in that sense as well. But, um, you know, you're also obviously paying for the knowledge and right. the skills that go into that, which is not to say that, you know, it's a insanely complicated area of study, but there's a lot of, you know, background that goes into it, I guess, is the word, you know, we talked a little bit about having to listen and that's always sort of the main, you know, main aspect of the job is listening to cast recordings or listening to source music or listening to whatever. Right. And picking out, you know, what the sound is and how to recreate it. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of that also comes in terms of sort of what I like to call translating the books themselves. Right. Um, which are, you know, all over the place when, in regards to, you know, how they're how they're presented. Um, you know, I hate to keep going back to Mamma Mia, but Mamma Mia is a great example of just really proprietary sounds where everything is sort of just labeled right. by song. Um, Little Shop of Horrors, at least the revival version, had a bunch of, like, song titles and 60s and 70s band references, mm -hmm. like Blood, Sweat and Tears or, you know... Uh, Sly and the Family Stone and, you know, all these like, you know, funk and, right. you know, R&B groups. Um, but they'd be specific songs and you'd have to go look them up and listen to the organ part and be like, okay, how do I get that? Right. <laughs> you know, other than that, you have really have no, have no point of reference. Mm -hmm. Whereas then there's a show like The Wedding Singer where The Wedding Singer has 
in like one of the three keyboard books has some really cool organ stuff. And the organ stuff is always really, really specific. They give you draw bars, they give you the effects you need. And, you know, it took a significantly, you know, less amount of time as a result. Um, but, you know, there's just such a wide range as far as, you know, there's no consistency really with notation in that regard right everybody's a little different and it really boils down to the orchestrators honestly because mm-hmm. they're the ones that are writing the parts uh and michael starobin you know who did spelling bean falsettos is going to write something totally different than you know duck besterman is or that larry hockman is or you know jonathan tunick is right um and they all have different you know sort of varying levels of familiarity and you know, association with keyboard programming, I guess right. you can say. Um, <laughs> and you, you got to begin to begin to know who's, who's who in that regard. But um, yeah, translation, I guess, is the, <laughs> right. that's, that's what I would call it. I think we talked about that a little bit last time where, you know, sometimes it's so right. incredibly vague, you know, what you get in those parts, even if you get anything at all. Sometimes right. there are parts like our, our team at Stage Sounds right now is working on oh, one of our designers is working on Xanadu, which oh, yeah. is notorious because there's like, you know, half the patch names are just not there. It just right. doesn't say anything. Um, but fortunately, one of our designers went to Berkeley and studied with Eric Stern, who was the original music director and orchestrator for Xanadu. And he's, you know, chatted with him and been able to figure out a lot of it. So right. hopefully he'll be able to figure that out. But yeah, no, that's, you know, just one of many certainly not the only example you know there's plenty of shows that are you know less than ideally notated in that regard because and again there's just no standard and you know i don't know if there ever will be but maybe we can maybe we can hope right <laughs> we talked a little bit about main stage i don't really want to get into that too much it's no. not like a main stage talk you no. know um you know the only thing that we we did talk about it being you know being sort of a awesome value which is it is but i think the distinction that a lot of people fall into there is just treating it as its own sub library which it really isn't it's sort of a platform right Um, and uh yeah it's it's what you make of it in that regard and i think that's where a lot of people fall into the trap of thinking they can do it all themselves by quickly throwing things together in there but it's not set up that way wherein you sort of have to have some audio knowledge of how to get those sounds to sound what the way they're supposed to it's not a you know not really a exactly plug and play right out of the box kind of thing it's more of just a right. here's a tool for you to use and you can put in a lot of other sounds to it if you right. want <laughs> one thing i believe i covered was the role of what's called the electronic music designer and that's mm-hmm what's become this sort of official title on Broadway, I believe, for this job. It was keyboard programmer or synthesizer programmer for a very long time. And then it turned into this largely because there's so much else going on now. There isn't just keyboard programming, but occasionally there's drums or like, you know, percussion pads and things. Um, There's tracks. There's a lot of Ableton going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's more than just keyboards, I guess, at this point. Um, But... I think it's sort of an interesting job title and you sort of have to think of many different people in that, right. in that mindset, you know, you're thinking always sort of thinking from the composer's perspective, you know, and the arranger's perspective. Um, you actually end up thinking a lot from the orchestrator's perspective though, because 
so often if you're designing something, especially with acoustic instruments, right. where you have something that calls for, say, strings or brass or just a very vague, <laughs> vague right. acoustic notation. Um, and then you have to look at the part and say, okay, well, what does that mean? <laughs> right. If it's, you know, just an octave in the left hand, you're saying, okay, that's probably basses and cellos. It's not violence. <laughs> right. <laughs> if it's a really high line in the right hand, it's probably violence, you know, vice versa. But um, so you end up thinking that way a lot. And again, that comes back to the part not always being labeled right. in the best of ways. You may have to do some dissecting. And that goes back to the idea of translating as well. Right. Um, and you're also obviously, of course, thinking from a music director's perspective. And I think that's something that we can both appreciate because right. you sort of have to always consider, you know, what part are you playing in that directorial sense in, in, in telling, telling the story? I always like to say, bringing right. it back to that, you know, does your, does your sound design, does your programming really, you know, come across in a way that is authentic musically that does it really evoke the styles you want it to evoke? Does it really, you know, have the effect that it has to, you know, have, it's not that it always needs to be the best, best sound it's just as long as the audience member hears it and goes oh yeah that's kind of like a funky organ thing that makes me think right. of this <laughs> right you know then you did your job <laughs> right um that's really what it boils down to as long as you are serving serving what's going on on stage i right. guess what it comes down to at the end and that's you know the way we have to think of as music directors a lot as well um but then the other ways i guess you're sort of thinking as you know, a programmer or electronic music designer here, you're thinking obviously from the pianist's perspective of is something playable? You're thinking, how is it playable? You're thinking, how can it be achieved with, you know, maybe not just the keyboard itself, but is there something involving your expression pedal or your volume pedal that you can do to evoke this sound, whether it's right. swelling the volume or adding some other effects. Sometimes you can apply a filter sweep on your pedal or with a you know, modulation wheel or something like that. Um, and then Obviously, there's the annoying technical side of it, which is you end up having to think sort of as an audio engineer, both an audio engineer and a software engineer. But as, again, one of those proverbial jack of all trades and master of none. Right. <laughs> you have to know just a little bit enough, enough about both to be really, really dangerous. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and then none of, the, none of the really complicated things. <laughs> right. You know, I can I can do a really rough mix on a logic track. I can do a lot of things from like the audio perspective, but you know, you get into some of the really technical stuff and I'll just be like, nope, I don't even know what you're mean anymore. Right. <laughs> and the same is true of software. I have a brother who's a software engineer and he's, you know, obviously well versed in a lot of things and he will occasionally talk at me and I just have no idea what he's saying. So yeah. I <laughs> talk all the time on this podcast <laughs> about the concept of uh specialist versus generalists and and yes. so so many theater people are generalists. Sure. And you know, I never really thought about it before now, but it's really natural if you're kind of in our background, you get into film scoring. Because uh, what is a film scorer? Mm -hmm. Well, unless he's, you know, in a, a Hollywood A-list composer with a team, then he probably is composing the music, arranging the music, um, contracting for live instruments, but also probably just a few because most of it he's doing himself. He's the producer. He or she is the producer. And, uh, and then also, you know, working with syncing the video and, you know, and, and mixing and mastering and all that. And to be honest, you know, we're probably 
only really good at maybe one or two of those. And, <laughs> and the rest, we're, you know, we're doing our best. You know, we're trying yep. to get a complete package in there. That's exactly true. Yeah. Okay. Uh, just once again, please uh, just tell us where can people find your your business about uh, about the keyboard programming and uh, where they can contact you. Sure. I have uh, my own personal website, which is johneldridgemusic.com. Um, that's John with an H-J-O-H-N-E-L-D-R-I-T-G-E. And then uh, we also have a Facebook page for our um, our business, Stage Sounds, which you can just type in the search bar. Uh, and we also have a pretty new website for that as well, which is stage-sounds.com. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for coming back on for this yeah, part two. Thank you. This is, this is a lot of fun. It's great to talk to you again. And that wraps up episode number 39 and my conversation with John Eldridge. Once again, I encourage you to check them out. There will be a link in the show notes and you can go check that out. Well, I haven't received a lot of criticisms uh, of this podcast so far, but one of the very, very few has been, it would be nice to have some more Broadway perspective, more players from Broadway. I had one when I did an interview with Aaron Gandy, um, who was the assistant music director and also played keys uh, part of the time for The Lion King for nine years. But he's the only person I've had who has talked about actual Broadway experience. Well, I'm pleased to say that I have multiple guests lined up who are going to talk about experience on Broadway, including next week. I'm going to be talking to someone who's played trombone, in shows such as Amelie, such as The King and I, Fiddler on the Roof. And uh, that was already a fun conversation. We've already recorded that. And I'm looking forward to sharing that with you next week here on Life in the Pit. As a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music, or Twitter and Facebook at David M. Lane Music. As always, a special thank you to Mark Perillo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction of this podcast. The theme music is composed and performed by David Lane. You can find out more about this podcast, leave feedback, or leave a donation through davidlanemusic.com podcast. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app, and please share with your friends. Thank you for listening.